So we, as you can see, are in Advent, and Advent is arrival or coming, and we are, over the last few weeks, looking at and celebrating the birth of Jesus. And not only that, because as Ra has said, the birth of Jesus has happened, so we're kind of remembering that, reflecting on it. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus when he makes all things new, that, that the Christmas season is actually a season where we are looking forward to being delivered by our Savior. But what I have kind of realized about our series is that it has been all about disruption. Right? And Christmas, I think, actually is all about disruption. We don't treat it that way. We kind of, you know, it's, it's more of a, a sort of jolly time, a time of friends or a time of frenzy, a time of trying to spend or not spend too much money or wishing we had more money to spend to give away gifts. But we don't realize maybe how disruptive and disturbing Christmas actually is. If you think about Rod's very first message, his was about this angel showing up to Mary and saying, guess what? You're going to have a baby and it's going to be God's. If that's not disruptive for a 14 to 15 year old girl, I don't know what's disruptive. Like that's a disruptive moment in her life. And you have to give Mary some grace. She handled it pretty well. She's like, how is this possible? <laughs> that like she, she wasn't freaking out too much. Though I, the Bible doesn't necessarily show us how much. She probably, as soon as the angel left, was like, ah! Like, kind of freaked out just a little bit. But then, like, last week, you know, she's nine months pregnant, traveling, you know, down from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and she's having a baby, and it's in public, and it's kind of, it's kind of her life is just in chaos. And Joseph's life is in chaos. And then the shepherd's lives get relatively disturbed by a bunch of big angels, right? Um, well, here's partly why I think at least Christmas for us should be disruptive, and that is that Jesus, as much as he is about us, he's not. There are two interesting scenes in Jesus' life, and I kind of titled them My House versus the Father's House, and I'll kind of hopefully tease that out a little bit if I do a good job tonight. But the first one is that when Jesus is a little older, maybe 12 years old, I think, in Luke 2, his parents kind of lose track of him, and they're hunting him down, and they're kind of freaking out. I know if you're a parent, you've had this moment. I've had this moment. Um, It happened at this church when uh, our entire house, this means five adults, managed to leave Elliot at home with nobody there and all show up at church um, when he was two. And so I've had that moment when, do you have Elliot? Do you have Elliot? Do you have, no, nobody has Elliot except the next door neighbors with whom he went over to call us because he's at two across the street or, or three. I don't remember how old he was, but he was little. Um, but this is Jesus's answer to his parents. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That Jesus is always about God the Father. Like who and what God the Father is doing and being, that's what Jesus is about. So much so that at the beginning of his ministry, most likely, and at the end of the ministry, and if you're just a historian, this is why Jesus was crucified, okay? This is the, ver- this is the actual reason he was crucified. He walked into the temple courts, Solomon's porch, where all of the marketing is going and the selling of sheep and, and, and where the Sanhedrin is. We're talking about where all Jewish like power sits and where religious power is and how everything is going to happen as a community when it comes to worship, right? And the Roman power is behind all of this. He goes in there 
And it, he starts turning things over and, and throwing things around. And he says this, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Right? So they had turned this place into a market. Now, actually, there's no laws against it, but except that it was a place for the Gentiles to find God. Um, but all through Jesus' life, and you'll see this, especially in the Gospel of John, where he's consistently about what his father is doing. And when he's making dramatic statements, he's making them about his father and what his father is about. Now, I began to kind of wrestle with this and and been thinking about this whole concept of Advent being kind of something that stirs me up and I need to, you know, think about things and what is, you know, baby Jesus doing and all that kind of stuff. And it made me think of Risk Europe. I don't know how many of you think about Risk Europe. Maybe some of you have never heard of Risk Europe. Um, it's actually an amazing game because it has nothing to do with risk. Um, other than it has soldiers on the board and you roll dice. But it's nothing like risk. But all week, I was looking forward to playing Risk Europe. Okay? Um, I, if you don't know, like we do have a lot of like 9 to 12-year-olds here. And somehow, I keep having breakfast with more and more of them. It's just becoming part of my deal. Um, and so I play a lot of board games with little kids and card games. And because you, you're not going to have like, have you ever tried to ask like a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old, like, how are you doing today? I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. How, what's going on with mom? I don't know. Like, unless you can get them distracted, they won't talk to you about anything, right? That's not how it's going to work. So anyway, I'm tired of playing with little kids. So I'm excited about playing with four adults, a serious, okay, nerd man game. Um, and I'm excited about this because I'm thinking about 12 or two hours of, of negotiation and rolling of dice and combat, and it's going to just, even if I lose, this is going to be fun. I'm just going to be out of let loose. So I invited two people that will remain nameless, though one of them is here tonight. Um, and I invited Albert, who's not here. He goes to the morning service most often, though he didn't show up with his wife this morning. Anyway, Albert came over. And here's the thing about Risk Europe. I introduced Albert to this game. And he took it home and apparently, unbeknownst to me, mastered the game. Uh, at levels that nobody can imagine. So in the first 30 minutes, this is a two-hour game, he beat us. In 30 minutes, the game was over. <laughs> this is not supposed to happen. And then we're like, well, let's do this again because that, that's a fluke. And then he beat us in 45 minutes. Um, and, and his wife told me earlier this morning that he's really, like, puffed up about this. Like, he thinks that he's mastered the game. But here's, here's why I tell you that story. Because for some reason, all week, I was thinking... That like this, it wasn't, I want the, I'm going to have this moment, this moment that's going to make me feel good. And I'm going to just be able to let go and not think about anything and do the thing that I like to do. And after it, I was grumpy and grouchy and angry and frustrated. And I couldn't get this icky feeling outside out of me. I was beat twice in less than two hours at a game that I thought I was good at and had never actually lost. Of course, I played it limited times. But anyway, with kids. <laughs> Younger than 14, actually. Um, so, so I had this, this, uh, this feeling of like, like a disappointment. Like I, I was kind of confronted with this savior, you know, kind of little savior I was hoping for. And, and, and it was disappointing to me. And so out of that, I kind of thought I would like to ask you the question, um, how does... 
Christmas disturb you? How does Christmas disturb you? Tonight, and you heard it read, but we'll, we'll uh, look at it tonight too. In Matthew chapter 2, we're going to talk um, about the Magi. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. I did not put a lot of the words on the screen. If you know the story, um, we're just going to kind of work it out today. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. If you were here last week, you'll remember that this is a special little city that, that only has Ace Hardware, um, Quick Mart, and a small inn. That's it. Maybe a few residents. It's a tiny little town that no, it's so small that they didn't draft men from it for the military because they didn't want to have all the men leave the town and nobody to do anything. Um, so that's kind of how that worked. Anyway, during the time of King Herod, this is King Herod the Great, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. This verse just got me thinking. Um, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem. And so I started thinking, why is King Herod, this is King Herod, maybe that's what he looks like, that guy just represents Jewish people. Uh, sorry, that was you know the best. They don't have pictures of first century Jewish people for me to put up there for you. And nobody carves you know anything of Jewish people. So why is Herod so disturbed? And why are the people disturbed? What, what's this disruption? So let's, let's talk about these magi. Those of you who have been at church for a long time, you think you know all about the magi. You know nothing because we know nothing. Right? There is lots of speculation about the Magi, but we don't know anything about them. But here's kind of probably what they are. Right? This is what our best guess is, is that these are mid to upper level diplomats who happen to be experts in astronomy and some kinds of magic, whose primary job, probably from Persia or from Babylon, was to go around and find kings. They visited Nero when he was a baby, not these particular ones probably, but this is their job. So they go around and do this. They go looking for kings, and they worship them and celebrate them and honor them. Now, possibly what happened here is that these guys are from Babylon, from Iran, and that Daniel, 600 years ago, who we're going to talk about, who was also most likely a magi, a magician of sorts, was also Jewish and devout follower of God. And so he influenced them. And so most likely there is an understanding of the Jewish scriptures and they understood Micah and they understood Micah 5.2, only there was no 5.2 there, but they understood that passage to say that a, a king was going to be born. And so they're headed there. There's not three of them, probably. No threes. In fact, there's probably an entire regiment that shows up in Jerusalem. Not three camels, but a lot of soldiers. Because if you travel that far with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, you're not going three of you, right? And if you're a government official, you're not going three. So so why were they disturbed? Well, they say, or why was Herod and the people disturbed? Well, they said to Herod, where's the king of the Jews? Well, Herod, who by the way is insane, right? 
I believe it's Nero who said it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because if you get in his way or he suspects you, he'll just kill you. In fact, I read an article on uh, a, a historian who recruited a world-renowned psychologist to do kind of a, a workup of Herod, and the man just has sort of like extreme delusional personality disorder is what they kind of diagnosed him with, because some days he's just, everything's great, and the next day he's killing everybody. Here's a man who was so afraid that they wouldn't mourn his death that he put a hundred rabbis in prison um, as he got older, and then he ordered for them to be killed when he died, so somebody would at least mourn when he died, because he didn't think anyone would mourn for him. But he managed to be called king of the Jews, and all of a sudden, all these people show up saying, we're looking for the king of the Jews. So immediately, his power is disrupted, right? He is, because, you know, you don't live forever, and so you need your children to kind of carry on your legacy, and there, he's like, I don't have any babies coming along, right? So this means I'm being displaced. So immediately, there's a power displacement. When there's a power displacement, it means you're not important anymore, right? So here come these people saying, hey, you're not important anymore. We're looking for the person who's going to be important, right? Now, why are the people afraid? Well, they're under Herod. And any, when a bunch of military people show up, that means some kind of conflict is going to happen. Um, and so they're like, well, Hopefully we'll live till next week, right? They're afraid for their safety. And I started thinking about this in, in a very classic village way, and I thought, well, this is just how all of us are. We're either, you know, we're either, you know, afraid that we're not important anymore, or we're afraid that we are not safe, right? Because the two things that make us human beings, that like the things that we crave, is for someone to say, you're an important or significant human being. That's what I want from you. I want you to repeatedly and constantly and always tell me I'm important. Right? Because I guarantee you, if Keith said some really nice things about me this morning, and I already think Keith doesn't like me anymore, right? Like, that's like, it's that easy, right? For me to, to, and, and I know that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's easy for your brain. All Keith would need to do is frown and maybe say something, and I'd be like, oh, my, oh, he doesn't like me anymore. Like, this is how it works. Like, we are just living on what people tell us and our, like, the different, our jobs, things that are telling us we're significant. And you can think about the things that make you feel important and the way people interact with you that make you feel important. That's what you long for and crave. That's what he wants. He wants power to some extent. But all of us also want to be safe. We want to come into environments and know we're secure, know that nothing's going to happen to us, that, like, people love us and care for us, right? These are the things that make us up. Significance and safety. That's what you and I want. The reason that they were disrupted and disturbed was because their significance, Herod's significance and the people's safety was, at, was threatened. Okay? So Herod does what all of us do. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, the king, was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And here comes Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. 
Then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So what Herod does as he manipulates the situation, right? He manipulates it so that he can get back in power, right? Well, this is where I want to go back to the whole house idea. Because the thing that got me thinking about the house idea when I was reading through this passage and thinking about Christmas is that I have built a house. And that house is built of with the idea that I am a good dad. That I am a pastor with where people, at least a few people, listen to me and think maybe I have something good to say. That I'm, I'm also a good parent. I've, I've built up a house too of like I've created a savings account and I have three cars that don't always break down all the time counter to what people think. Uh, right? I have cars. I have a beautiful, beautiful wife. I have kids. I've I could go on and on about this wonderful home that I have built that makes me important and helps me feel secure. But when those get threatened, I begin to manipulate the situation. And here's kind of why I had the risk example there. Because when things get threatened, so for me, I had created this wonderful game of experience that I was gonna, it was going to be good for me. And it wasn't good, and I was disappointed And so what happened was I got grumpy. And here's how I manipulate my situation. So I'll just be really vulnerable. I don't go and secretly call any of you and say, hey, you know, next time tell me what Keith says about me, all right? So we can work it out and I'll go to him. I don't don't say anything like that. I just get grumpy because I know that if I'm grumpy, people around me have their own issues. They don't want me grumpy. And so they're going to try to subdue my grumpiness. Right? They're going to try to make me feel better and tell me I'm significant. So I'm like, I'm empty. I don't like this. I'm going to be grumpy. And then I'll get what I want. But if people don't react that way to me, then I go the other way. So I can be grumpy. Or I'll just go to the part where I'm going to get some power. So if I don't feel safe, maybe I'm being threatened that way, I'm going to hold everybody in contempt. I'm going to be contemptuous and judgmental of people because then if they're not going to comfort me, well, then they're not any good anyway, right? You guys don't know what you're talking about. about, So I swing back and forth. This is how I manipulate my environment to, to restore things. Now, for Herod, this is a really practical one. Herod's just manipulating his situation because he wants to find out where this new king of the Jews is so he can kill them. That's all he wants to do. But he's playing nice because he's got to find him. So he's manipulating the situation so he can regain his place of equilibrium. Because this word disturbed is kind of like being on a boat. So he's been kind of put, it's rocking back and forth. He's been put in an unstable situation. So verse 9, it says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the children, the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. There's one other character 
that sometimes gets missed in the story. And no, it's not the star. It's actually the source. It's the father. There's this cosmic event that happens in the story where somehow, probably over two years, a star manages to guide a regiment of people all the way to a little unknown town, you know, near Jerusalem, like this, the city of David, the little town of David. Like, <laughs> it's the baby. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love the village. It's awesome. The source. <laughs> the father like what i think is interesting here and i hopefully will manage my train of thought is that is that god himself enters into this story and moves a star to the place where his son is christmas advent is a reminder that it's not about our house it's not about the house you've built It's about the house that the Father has built. You and I find no significance and no safety in our own homes, in the places where we make identity, where we create the sense of safety for ourselves. Only home that we can find any kind of significance and safety in is in the house of the Father, who moves the star over his Son. Now, what happens... On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So God intervenes also in a dream. but So they find Jesus. And the first thing that they do is that they bow down and worship him. So that scene is you've got Mary with a toddler, probably two years old, and these very important men laying themselves prostrate in front of a Jewish peasant and a peasant kid saying, I am not. They're saying, we are not. You are. Worship is that at its very core. The invitation of Christmas is for you and I to move out of our own homes, the homes where we have built our own identities and we live in those and manipulate to keep them afloat, and to step into God's house and to say, okay, the only place that I find significance and meaning is in Jesus. And so to do that, to really acknowledge that, I have to worship because worship is saying I am not. It's not me. It's you, right? And it's a power thing. They're laying prostrate on the ground. It's an acknowledgement of the source. So part of the disruptive part of Christmas for us is that when we look at baby Jesus, we are forced to acknowledge that we're not the source of our salvation. We're not the source of our meaning. We're not the source of our purpose. This child is the source of our meaning and purpose. But how do we do that in a, in, a, in a good way? How do we worship? Well, I think one of the ways to worship is to nurture affection. 
right? The way that you and I can worship is to nurture affection. So how does that work to nurture affection? Well, I think all of us know how it works. Like, I do not feel necessarily close to my kids if I don't nurture affection for them. Well, how do I nurture affection for them? I certainly, it's not sitting down and thinking like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what Elliot's problem is. Like, Ashton's 17. I mean, I don't know what she's doing. Like, like, and, and begin to have negative thinking about my kids and tearing them down. No, nurturing affection for my children is to be like, oh my gosh, I have a 13-year-old boy who is happier than me all the time, who likes me even when I'm grumpy, right? Well, that, that begins to nurture something, to reflect upon the good nature of my son tightens me with my son. So for us to worship God is for us to nurture affection for him. To do that, we must reflect on what he's done in our life. That's step one, to really nurture. And, and so, so often, it's, you know, we get caught up because we're in this world where brokenness is and where sin is and where darkness is that we're like, well, God didn't come through here. He didn't come through here. He didn't come through here. He didn't come through here. Well, I guess he didn't come through here. But guess what? He's come through like a lot in your life. And you lose sight of that when you don't nurture it. That's step one. Step two, at Christmas, you're nurturing affection by simply saying, okay, baby Jesus, disrupt me. Like, make me look inside. Jesus says in Matthew, later on in Matthew, that, like, that people's worship is in vain because it's outward and not inward, right? That it's not from the heart. Christmas is challenging our hearts. But the other way is to just simply open your Bible begin to reflect and, and nurture kind of a, a, a joy simply out of the words that God has given you that are divine and inspired. Right? These are the ways that we can nurture affection. But the second thing is, and I put hot rocks up here, I'll tell you what that all means in just a minute. They give them gifts. Now here's some interesting historic facts. So first, everybody knows what gold is, right? No. So peasant, mother, peasant family, that money is enough for them to live for a really long time, right? So, so these gifts are so that Mary and Joseph and Jesus can live for a long time. That's how they, they escaped to Egypt for two years. You know how they survived? Off of frankincense, which is the incense, and myrrh and gold. Now, gold is interesting, but frankincense and myrrh, again, if you've grown up in the church, you're like, I know, frankincense, that's, that's for, for the priesthood of Jesus because that's used in sacrifices. And myrrh is what we embalm people with. So this is for, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was put forward by, I forget, a third century guy. I can't remember his name. Um, but no, it was St. Ambrose. We sing his song. That's who put that forward. It's his idea. But we don't know what it's for. We do know that actually how you get, I forget what kind of tree this is from, but we know how you get it because you can go buy it. You kind of chop the bark off this particular tree and then you come back after a week and all the sap is kind of hardened and then you chop it off. And that's how you get those things. Thing is, is frankincense and myrrh, like these things were used by the rich, not by the poor. And they were used by kings and Caesars and governors in their funerals and in their spiritual worship. And they were also used in magic. Like, we have tons and tons of papyrus from this time where frankincense is used in tons of different spells. 
right? So this is, this is a spiritual thing, but all it is, it's worth a lot of money. And this is how, these are just gifts. Now, Jesus, it's Jesus' birthday. And the gift that Jesus wants from us, the way that you and I can nurture our affection for him, is actually to do what he said, which is in the Gospel of John, he tells us that we're to love one another and that, like he's loved us, and that this is how the world will know who we are. That Jesus wants us on our his birthday to be saying, here's a gift. To express extravagantly our love for one another, because when we do that, we intensify our worship. It, it becomes something more than just us when we begin to pour out gifts on one another. So, why the hot rocks? So my wife and I, we decided, like, well, we go to Bed Bath & Beyond on our dates. We have this like interesting date. Mama, this is like the cheapest date ever. Here's how we worked it. We went and we spent $200 and we bought these things where we can have free hamburgers or anything, like one free entree a day from Smashburger from the beginning of December to the middle of February, right? So I've been eating way too much at Smashburger. Uh, um, but... So we go to Smashburger and we eat for free. Then we go and walk through Bed Bath and Beyond and they have a massage chair. So you sit in the massage chair together, hold each other's hands, say, isn't this great? We're getting a free massage together. Right. But while we were walking through, we saw these Himalayan massage balls. So what they are, these these salt rock smooth balls that are in this bowl that heat up and they get really hot. And so what we agreed to do was we're going to give each other every other day, like we're going to rotate, we're going to just give each other a neck rub and a back rub with these hot rocks. Let me tell you, that has intensified my affection for my wife when she rubs those on my shoulders. I'm like, you are the most amazing person I've ever known, right? And I know I, I say that all in humor, but there is something about expressing a deep love for someone that intensifies our love for Jesus and communicates that we're not building our house in in our house. We're building our house in God's house, right? And yeah, there's a lot of convoluted things about motors and all that kind of stuff. but, But in its purest sense, this is a very powerful thing when you and I are able to give what we have been given by God to one another. Maybe it's not hot rocks. Maybe it's your gifts, your talents that you pour out on other people, the way that you care and speak to people, the way you build them up and lift them up. This is how we intensify them. So to kind of bring it all around to risk the thing that was really convicting to me about that, and you may say, this is a silly game, Eric. Why are you having this issue? But it was, it, what I realized, and, and kind of this whole time of Christmas has helped me realize, is that I really am striving to build my own peace. And so I'm trying really hard to create spaces for me to have peace. When baby Jesus keeps saying, I'm the only peace you can have. In whatever chaos you live in, in whatever defeat by Albert you experience, I am your peace. That was kind of hard for me to swallow this week, and particularly this weekend. But 
That's kind of what I, what Christmas and this passage has kind of worked out in my life and made me think about. I would be interested in two minutes of conversation. <laughs> Anybody's thoughts, ideas, questions, want me to expand things, want me to kind of clarify my train of thought? Anything like that? No? Yes, ma'am. Oh, probably need a mic. My mic runner left. And my sound man left too. <laughs> wow, I'm out of. I'm out. Oh, there he is. We got a. We have a person on the mic. All right, I didn't see you. Sorry, Tim. Go for it. Okay, that should have been enough time for me to collect my thoughts. But this idea of yeah, being able to silence myself for a minute and oh, it's so hard to explain. <laughs> I just loved what you said at the beginning about. Um, Oh, I should have written it down about worship and it not being about us. I just, there was a moment this week when I was trying to picture the picture that you gave us of baby Jesus and what all of that looked like. And all of a sudden I was just completely silenced with the fact that he is there, you know, he's come and there's something, there's a presence there to to stand like silent before. And Mm. it was just so nice because, yeah, I didn't have to bring anything to it. It was like a real expectation that there was a real presence to to be listening to and to be worshiping. Wow. Well, that's cool. Thank you, Meg. Now we have a sound guy. Anybody else? What? Rose over here. Um, recently, I've been having a difficult time kind of identifying where God has showed up in my life. And I know that that's ridiculous because I have a lot to be thankful for, but I tend to give the credit to people. And um, so I guess, like, I'm just wondering. I don't know. (laughs) It's a difficult thing for me to do, so I was wondering if you could expound upon that, like how exactly you can identify what God like where God has shown up in your life. How do you do it, maybe? I don't know. Okay. Um, well, for me, it is a lot to do with people, um, and particularly people who are pointing me towards God. That That's usually, um, or people who have entered in life into my life in the moments of crisis and been able to speak with clarity the truth about who God is. That's usually where God is acting and I can begin to think about what's happened in a spiritual sense and also him just acting through people. And that would be my best short answer. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Or, or Yes. Oh, there and then look at Betsy in the... I was just going to say that... Um, I would agree with Eric because um, as a mother, often my prayer was bring someone into one of my children's life that will really speak truth, um, maybe in something they were going through, different times in their lives, and, and I saw God do that. So I, yeah. Cool. I've never heard it described the... Um, so I've always sort of wrestled with the like the 
humility of of how Jesus was born and where he was born and and all of that and but I the picture of it not being three wise men or magi and maybe that it was a lot with like and the and the royalty and the wealth and the sound of like what it would have been like to enter a you know a small town and so to that continued like internal wrestling with who Jesus is both that like baby born to a peasant and the like extreme like that he's a king like those um contradictory labels or um descriptions of like who he is I I just think that that's something I want to reflect on this week so thanks for that picture you're welcome all right, I will. I we can do one more, and if anybody has anything to say, go on once, twice. All right, sure. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, revealing yourself to us, and that you continue to do that. Um, I just ask that as we eat, as we sing, as we reflect, as we take um, of your body and your blood, that you would be uh, ever present in our mind and that you would uh, challenge our uh, preconceptions of you and that we would also have courage tonight to engage one another um, over dinner about you. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.